You know, these days, we hear more and more, it seems like to me, about superheroes. Okay? That, that for some reason, you know, the comic books that I read as an eight-year-old uh, have hit the big screen, uh, and uh, it's, it's a big deal. I remember when I was in college, and, and it was about 1978, I think, uh, when the original Superman movie came out, you know, with the guy with the curl right here, who's now... Uh, who's now in heaven, but um, um, I, I just remember thinking, uh, I, do you remember the, the commercials for that? Or you, come on, I'm not the only old person in here. Do you remember they would come on, the, the commercials would come on like months before that the movie Superman came out, and they would say, you will believe a man can fly. Okay. And you kind of did. It was like, how does he do, how do they do that? Well... What you and I are, we see a lot of these um, in, in modern media, and honestly, honestly, we find that these superheroes are amazing to watch, but they're rather impossible to imitate. I can't do what Superman does. And modern culture would like us to emphasize the flaws of those who might realistically pre be presented as worthy of imitation. I just finished a book that Rhonda is now reading. Rhonda, that, as I read that book, about a, who I believe to be a modern-day hero, it made me want to emulate some of the things that in his life. He wasn't perfect, but it made me want to emulate some of the good parts of this great man, this great leader's life. So... The passage we'll study today commends the lives of 16 different heroes. They weren't supermen, not superwomen, but they were heroes nonetheless. Much like the stories in our day, these men and women weren't flawless, they weren't without weakness, but somehow their faith shined through in a way that you and I ought to emulate. We ought to try to... Uh, you know, Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. He had that audacity. Uh, there are some in the scriptures that we ought to read and study and follow after. And that's kind of what we're dealing with today. Their lives are an example to us of what we have been talking about all this summer of living by faith. So let me give you just a little bit of context for... Um, uh, for, for the book of Hebrews, and in particular Hebrews 11. Rhonda, you, you, got your, you got your phone out over there. Is everything, it looks like it's going okay, but I know a couple weeks ago we had a problem. Okay. All right, now, it's interesting. There are a lot of questions about the book of Hebrews. Are you aware of that? It's funny to me that um, uh, there are a lot of questions about authorship, a lot of questions about whether or not the book of Hebrews should have been included in Scripture. In fact, it was included in, in, the, in our Bibles in the New Testament canon kind of late. There was a, there was a book, actually a, a commentary published in 1876 that made an extended argument for the authorship of this book by the Apostle Paul, uh, a position that was held that today is held by nearly no one. But in 1876, there were books written advocating that the book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. By the way, this was so much of a common belief back in the day that your Bibles are set up kind of with an implication that Paul wrote it. Are, are you aware of that? So uh, here's a, did you ever do sword drill when you were a kid? You know what sword drill is? 
Yeah. Janet, you did some sword drill, right? Uh, it's where they'd say, uh, ready, draw swords, and you'd pull your Bible out, and they'd give you a reference. You had to find whoever got it the fastest, you know, won that particular round. Well, if, if you're trying to do sword drill in the New Testament, um, one of the things that has been in, interesting to me is the book of Hebrews falls at the end of all of Paul's writings. It's like, well, we're pretty sure Paul didn't write it, but we're going to put it in there with all Paul's writings anyway. So uh, when I think of the New Testament, when I, I think of I'm going to find James and turn left, or if I'm in Peter, I realize that Hebrews is back left because it's at the end of all, all of Paul's writings. It's between Paul's writings and the book of James. So um, uh, it, isn't it interesting? It kind of finds its place even in the, in the uh, setup of our Bibles with, with some of that in mind. Now, um, so this 1876 book um, uh, makes a case for the book's inclusion in Scripture on uh, four points. Okay, First, it was written by Paul. Now, you and I know it probably wasn't. Second, it was quoted as Scripture. And it's interesting. It was quoted in the first and second centuries as Scripture. Third, it was found in the old, oldest versions of the New Testament Scripture. And fourth, it features internal evidences for inclusion, like uh, its teaching is in harmony with the rest of the Scriptures, which it is. Okay, now, with the passing of a century and a half or so since the publication of that commentary in 1876, we can assert that we know, are you ready? Here we go. We know more and we know less. Okay? We know more and we know less uh, than we did then. Modern commentaries are going to reflect the wealth of knowledge that we've gotten to, but they're basically going to say we're no closer to an answer on who wrote this than we were in 1876. So and you see what I mean by uh, they thought they knew in 1876 and, we don't, and now we know that we don't know. Okay? So did I just get branded as a heretic right here in Crossing Sunday School? I hope not. Uh, but we really just don't know. Um, when I was in seminary, um, we spent probably two weeks, five hours a day, talking about authorship of the book of Hebrews to get to the end. And this very astute professor says, so basically we don't know. <laughs> two weeks of study. Having to do all kinds of reading and writing papers. And at the end of it, the prof who's supposed to know all this stuff says, eh, we just really don't know. Made all kinds of hypotheses, and we still don't know. So that's kind of where we are. Now, even though no author is specified, uh, we know something about him. We know that, that whoever wrote it was highly educated. Uh, we know that they were really um, uh, versed in Greek culture and in writing uh, in Koine Greek, the, the, the Greek of, of the New Testament. We know that, um, um, uh, and, and for our study today, uh, if we were to read the whole book, it doesn't just bring up this idea of living by faith that we've been studying, um, but it... Chapter 11 is going to be the kind of the culmination of a lot of that kind of discussion all the way through the book of Hebrews. It goes back as far as chapter 3 or chapter 4. Doyle. Why would Paul be excluded? He's not excluded. So he's in the list. Okay. So if you, 
if I were doing a two-hour lecture on who wrote the book of Hebrews, I'd start with Paul, but then I'd go on and say, probably not, and then I'd go to 16 others and say, and probably not. So Doyle, it's, he's not excluded. It's just nobody knows. The, the main reason... The main reason for the exclusion of Paul is it just doesn't sound like him. The Greek is different, very different than any of his other letters. So, uh, I mean, there's, it, it, there's some who will say it has to be at least a, a close contemporary of Paul's. I mean, one hypothesis that I studied in seminary was uh, it was written by uh, Silas. Wouldn't that be interesting? If, if, who was one of his traveling companions? That, that that's got some merit, but again, nobody knows. Cindy, has anybody compared Apollos's other writings? They have. Apollos is, Apollos is another one of those. Was it him? And and there's a case that can be made for that. There are probably books this thick that have been written about Apollos' authorship of the Book of Hebrews, and and basically at the end of it, it'll say, but nobody knows. John? What about Barnabas? Uh, you know, I've read some of that about Barnabas. He is in the list, but probably down the line on the list, as I recall. Um, okay. Um, uh, my little bit of study on this, one of the things that I am led to believe, maybe, and this would be an unnamed source, but there is so much in here that is insider trading information uh, about priesthood that it makes me wonder if it was a Jewish priest that wrote it who had become a believer. But I don't know, you know. Uh, that would be, now Nicodemus wasn't a priest. He was, he was a lawyer, but he wasn't a priest. Anyway. When we all get to heaven. Yep. When we all get to heaven, uh, Lord, you mind if I ring up whoever wrote the book of Hebrews because he's really something. Uh, okay, so yeah. Uh, my mom has already done Bible study with whoever that is. I guarantee you. Okay? She's been there long enough. That, yeah, Mom knows. She hadn't told me yet, but she knows. Okay. All right. So isn't that interesting? Now, let's talk about this issue of faith because as we begin chapter 11, we're going to get a hero's hall of fame of faith as we begin. And we're going to get Nadine's favorite definition of faith. In verse 1 and 2. Okay? And maybe it's yours. And I'm going to do my best to unpack this definition of faith and hope a little bit. Now, Steve Blair, if I can prevail on you, would you read the first three verses of chapter 11? Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Uh, this is just, it is so smart to start with. It's so absolutely intelligent that it, it uh, uh, goes beyond reasoning. This is a book that Dr. Bill Reeves has got to like because he's, he's one of the smartest guys I know. Um, so the idea is here, the idea is here is a, okay, you ready for this? A platonic idea is invoked here, and it's also invoked in verse 3. Now, you, did you have to take philosophy in college and study, uh, study Plato? Plato lived about uh, in the 400s 
or the 300s BC. Okay, so he wasn't a contemporary of Paul, but he was certainly in a culture that was highly influenced by the Greeks and by Greek philosophy. He was still being bandied about. So when you read, um, when you read John 1, you get a platonic idea from, from John in his gospel. And certainly when you read all the way through the book of Hebrews, I am made to hearken back to sitting in my senior philosophy class in college with Wade B. Jakeway, with Dr. Jakeway, who would, who would say that he would point to this table here and he would say, now this table, my friends, is only a faint representation of the universal tableness. <laughs> and that chair you're sitting in, be happy that it's holding you up because it's only just a faint copy of the universal chairness, which is in heaven. Okay? So when you go down that road, all right, and by the way, I think I made an A in philosophy, but I don't remember. Uh, when, when you go down that road and then you read Hebrews 11, it begins with this thought that there is the invisible and there is the visible in the Greek thought. The invisible is the real. And the physical is a copy of the real. Did I just lose you? Yeah. Okay. The invisible is the real. And the physical is merely a faint copy of the real. I, uh, all the way through the book, of, uh, the book of Hebrews and certainly through the book of Colossians, there's this idea. Um, I remember when I was doing lots of recording and I would copy a tape of a tape of a tape of a tape. By the time I got to the fourth or fifth tape, it was really fuzzy. You know, sometimes uh, it's better in, in the digital age, but if you're copying on a copier, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, by the time you get to the fifth copy, it's kind of fuzzy a little bit. And much is said in the book of Colossians and the book of Hebrews about Jesus being the original, not a copy. He's God in the flesh. He's not a copy of God. That's you and me. Couldn't the evidence also be the, I mean, couldn't the, uh, what you call it, the copy of it, couldn't it also be the evidence instead of a fake? Well, okay, I think that's perfect, Nadine, because it's the idea that there is evidence of my faith as being real. Let's talk about that for just a second here. So faith and hope, that's what goes in your first blanks there, are often linked in the New Testament. We've looked at that quite a bit. Okay, so what you and I are going to talk about in terms of um, this confidence, the word that, that is brought up here, confidence is a, um, it's a financial term, a banking term, uh, which confidence, it has something to do with a down payment. This is a down payment on the real thing. Okay, and the word assurance that's used here is a legal term that talks about proof. I've got proof. That which we don't see is more real 
than that which we do. Now, I'm going to make a case for this as we get to the end of the study today. So hang on with me, because what I'm going to tell you is the world you're living in is not real. The world to come is the real thing. Amen. Okay? And I've got faith in that. A fervent hope in that. i got to stop for a minute, because I saw this guy last week, and I didn't say anything to him. So, Herbie? I saw you on your golf cart this week, cleaning the grounds, okay? So right back here, Janet and Herb Berenger. I don't get to see you very much, Herbie. I'm glad you're here today. When you come on this property, and it's just, Rhonda would say, it's going, oh, you know? It's because of Herb Berenger right there. Now, I've known Herb Berenger since I was like 16, and in those days, he was Brooks Robinson as a shortstop playing softball. But, but uh, and now he is keeping this ground, the, the ground around here looking wonderful, isn't he? Yep. And anyway, Herb, just thank you for doing what you do, pal. He, he was out in the heat Friday afternoon when I was driving by here in his golf cart doing his thing. By the way, that too is real. You hear me? Yes, Miriam. We have the only church property that is beautiful in the winter as well as the spring and the summer. Couldn't say it any better, Miriam. You're right. Well, thank you, Herb. And uh, Okay, so go to verse 2. The faith and hope of all these patriarchs that we're going to list here, we're not going to get to all 16 of them. We're just going to get to four or five of them. But that faith was witnessed to. How does it say it in verse 2? What does it say there? It was commended. So that word is the same word uh, as witnessed. Um, go with me back to the left. Go to John 1. I've, I've been kind of stuck in John this week trying to compare what he has to say about some of these things uh, with the Hebrews writer. John 1, 8. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The same word, witnessed to, attested to. So the idea here is those patriarchs' faith was witnessed, was attested to. By whom? You ready? God himself. Can it be a higher, um, can there be a higher endorsement than for your faith to be attested to to be witnessed by God himself. That's why these people are included in here. Now, I'm going to tell you, you're going to look at these stories and you're going to say, well, now, wait a minute, but he, but she. Okay, well, I get that. That's kind of how I started this time. It kind of gives me the fact that there's hope for me, that despite flaws, I can still live by faith. Okay? Look at verse 3. I want to read it again. It's very important. Here we go. Uh, Plato shows up again here. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things which are visible. visible. Now, um, in the 4th century B.C. or so, uh, this uh, Plato's ideas of types and shadows uh, was thought about. Let me tell you what was not thought about. Microscopes. If, if I read Hebrews 11.3 in the context of modern science, I might be thinking, well, sure, they didn't have telescopes and microscopes, right? That they're 
atomic particles and even subatomic particles, and I don't understand. I don't understand what I even just said. I, I actually kind of accept that by faith, right? Because I can't see him, but I know that everything in here is made out of something smaller that can't be seen. But I also know there's there's a word used in verse 3 that's highly important. It's important in John 1. It's the word of God spoke it into existence. What you and I need to kind of come to terms with here is that um, this is true um, because God spoke it. Um, Go back with me to John. I hope you didn't do what I did. I I moved from it. Somebody read John 1, 3 if you beat me there. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So implications of that. Here's the largest of which. You ready? He made all of this out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3, same idea. What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Jesus didn't kind of say, well, let me give me a little bit of that, give me a little bit of that, and I'll put all this together. He made it by his word out of nothing. Read Genesis 1. Let there be light, and there was light. That's why that he's creator and we cannot create. We can put things together. We call it we created something. We really didn't. You know, what I love about that thought, Cindy, is to the extent that I am created in the image of God, I'm created with some little bit of creativity, but I'm not making anything new. He made all that. Nothing new under the sun. Not to that degree, is there? Okay, let's go to the next section. I'm going to prevail on John, if you will, to go to verse 4 and read down through verse 8. It's going to start this kind of hall of fame here. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because everyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Okay, let's, let's pull a couple of things in here in just a minute so, to kind of help us with this. Will somebody go to Genesis 5 and read 20 through, 22 through 24? I got it. Thank you. All right. I need somebody else to go to Romans 4 verse 5. I've got it. Thank you, Cindy. Okay, let's, let's get going on this. Now, we've been talking all this summer 
And we're certainly talking today about this idea that the righteous shall live by faith. It's going to begin with the second generation of mankind as presented in the scriptures, Cain and Abel. The children, the original two children of um, uh, Adam and Eve, right? Okay. Isn't it interesting that in the very first home, intrigue, jealousy, even murder rears its ugly head really early on, right? And by the way, don't go too far with this, but by the way, they got in a fight over worship. Mm. You ever been in a church that was fighting over worship? Dan, nothing new under the sun, dude. Okay? All right. Now, so uh, somebody read Romans 4 or 5. Who got that one? Thank you, Cindy. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. <laughs> to that person who has faith, it's credited as righteousness. So but the question that I left in your outline here. Abel's, or the, the, the blank here, Abel's blood is a continuing witness to his faith. Why? Abel lived by faith. Why was his, why was his um, offering accepted and Cain's not? Well, you can make all kinds of cases that one was a blood sacrifice and one was not. I'm not sure that's the issue. I think it's heart that was the issue. Okay. And faith was the issue, and we believe, according to what the Bible tells us here, that Abel lived by faith, and he lives still, according to Hebrews 11, by faith. Okay, now there's, a, there's an, another hero that comes up in verse 5. His story is told in an economy of verses in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 5, actually. Um, his name is Enoch, or Enoch, okay? Um, let's see, Laura, did you get, the, somebody got, you want to read Genesis 5, 22, 23, and 24. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now that's quoted here in the book of Hebrews in, in, in chapter 11, verse 5. Okay. Who was Enoch? He was a, there was a lot of things about him. It, it gives you his pedigree. It tells you who his dad was, who was, you know, all that. Who was his son? His son was Methuselah. I almost didn't say that right. His son was Methuselah, who was kind of the oldest guy that we believe ever lived, right? But what, the, what about Enoch? It doesn't say much about him, except that he walked with God by faith. I'm not real sure how that worked, but I know I've heard... Um, one of my great mentoring preachers from way back in, in the day used to say, uh, say it this way, that Enoch walked with God every day by faith. He would take a, take a stroll with God every day by faith. And at the end of the day, Enoch would say, well, I got to go home. And on this day, God just said, hey, man, why don't you go home with me? With me. <laughs> I love that thought. I've known people kind of like that of you. That I just wondered if God just said, okay, today, let's just go home. Why don't you go with me? Uh, because, because uh, his story is good and brief, 
as far as we know, no death. Why? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 11, because he pleased God. And we know that what pleases God is faith. You catch that? Because he was pleasing to God. Verse 5. All right. Look at verse 6. There's a principle that comes out of it. It's like he's, he's going through this list of people to give illustrations of living by faith. And he gets caught up in this as he talks about Enoch. And when he gets to verse 6, he just stops and says, you know, I've got to apply this a little bit. John, read verse 6 again. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He was taken up. Enoch was taken up with God because he was pleasing to God. And you and I all, already are thinking, how? And he answers his, that question in verse 6. The, the idea, this general principle, without faith, God cannot, will not, shall not be pleased. Only by faith. And the requirement, he says here, the kind of faith is, I've got to believe he exists. And that he's good. He rewards those who diligently seek him. He's powerful enough to get that done. All right. And so he goes to, in verse 7, to the example of Noah. Uh, And Noah, it is said here... um, by what he did, condemned the world. Now, if you're, you're like me and I read verse 7, I have a little problem with the thought of, um, of Noah uh, condemning the world. But the idea here is, I think, is that his faith condemned the world because he was unique in that. Um, there had not yet, um, he had faith in things that he didn't see. Unlike anybody, and he had faith in a God that he couldn't see. In particular, what did he have faith in God's promise about? It was going to rain. It was going to rain. It hadn't rained. It hadn't rained. It was going to rain. And so Noah, as he's building the ark, is preaching to people saying, you know what, you guys better turn to God. Or he's going to destroy this place. He's promised me he's going to. And he's going to do it by, by water. Uh, and, and, you know, they just kind of scoff at him. By the way, talk about faith. The rabbis teach. So way back in the day, the rabbis taught that Noah planted the trees that he later harvested to make the ark. That's faith. That's long-lasting faith. Ron and I watched an Olympic marathon over the, over the last week, and I think, those guys stick with it. How do you stick with it for 40 years or whatever it took to grow a tree big enough to, uh, to use the wood to build an ark? So the idea here is that Noah's faith condemned the world. Now, his faith set him apart. So when we think about the world here, we think about that term. There, there are three different biblical concepts of the world. One is planet Earth in a physical sense, like, like you and I um, are, are inhabitants of. So a second thought is the world's human inhabitants. Uh, that's the context of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. 
That's the people in it. And uh, also then as a system of values opposed to God. Uh, over in, um, in Colossians 2.20, it's going to talk about this world system that is contrary to the Bible and to God. So Noah, kind of, he was different in the way he approached life. And his life clearly condemned the world by the way he lived it. I had a living, breathing example of this growing up. I had a dad who was a righteous man. And he, he worked in a hard world. And occasionally I was with him. He was a plumber. And hung out with uh, 150 or so plumbers. And Brad, I'm sure you were a nice guy, but many of the plumbers I met when I was 12 and 13 were not, uh, they were a little shady. Wayne, sorry. Sorry. Okay. By the way, I love plumbers. You know that, don't you? I was, and then Jesus saved my life. But, uh, literally, man. Exactly. My dad would walk through the shop and all. Oh, there you go. Uh, my, my dad would walk through the shop. And the language would just change. It was kind of incredible. These guys who just before had said all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't want to say in Sunday school. It would just change. Why? Because there was a holy man in the room. There was... And it, was, it, was, it wasn't that he was condemning them. It's just his life was so different. Salt and light. It was salt and light, Cindy. I am nowhere close to where this guy was. All right? That's Noah in his day. He was righteous. He wasn't perfect. But he was righteous. And it condemned his world. Now... It invokes Abraham. We've talked about him quite a bit. Verse 8. Um, Abraham clearly acted on his faith. If you read verse 9 through 12, and then if you read on verse 17, 18, and 19, you're going to read about some of the ways that he acted out his faith. But he trusted God even when he couldn't see him. Now, I'm, I'm going to fill in your blanks because we've got to come, we got to land the plane here. So, uh, in verse 13, uh, the idea is uh, we are foreigners here. Being foreigners meant that this world was not home. It says that about Abraham in Genesis 23. He's going to say, I'm an alien. In verse 14 and 15, um, they're gonna, it's going to talk about a temptation here. And uh, it's going to use the word better for the rest, for this entire book. 18, thir sorry, 13 times in the book, the word better is used uh, to describe something about this new system of faith. Now, I want to say this. Their great temptation... This book was written to Jewish believers living in Rome during a time of persecution. So what do you suppose their number one temptation would be? It would be to drop. I could say it was legal to be a Jew. It was not legal to be a Christ follower. So the number one temptation to save my own skin might be to go back to just being Jewish. You could say it, it says it here, to go back home. Just go back home to what I grew up with. 
just to save my skin. In that context, listen to verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are indeed seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have the opportunity to return. Catch it? But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Am I living my life in such a way as to add my name to this list. There's 16 of them in Hebrews 11. Am I living my life in such a way? I know I'm flawed, but am I living my life by faith in such a way that I could literally, that maybe someday my name would be added to the list? Living by that kind of faith leads me to what we have talked about for weeks to this confident hope. I've got to ask a question. Okay? I've got to ask a question. They believed that here was not home. Do you live here as an alien? <laughs> or do you live in here as a citizen? It's really easy to get that confused right now. Okay. Let me tell you, in that place, there is no pandemic. In that place, there is no disease. In that place, there is no death. I'm looking at several of you who have had sorrow. There is no sorrow in that place. I'm going to tell you this. I, I live and breathe and um, uh, enjoy Citizenship is a, is a citizen of the United States of America, and I love it when, a, when an Olympian wins a gold medal and they wrap themselves in the flag. I'm sorry, I'm unapologetic about that. Right. But this is not home. Right. <laughs> I'm just kind of passing through here. I'm glad I was born here in all of the, all of the things that that means to me, all the freedoms that I enjoy. But I'm an alien here. And I gotta keep sight of that. Rhonda, when the tree limbs come down, I gotta remember that's not really home either. <laughs> it, I'm just a steward of it. You know? Okay, we're gonna keep talking about this issue of faith and hope. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Have a great Sunday.